I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. First, it's like, they don't even know what it is. It's this big mass. And then they find out it's a ship. Yeah. And our ship would have to decide to stop. Like, mm-hmm. turn on the afts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those haven't been turned on, but they've never been never turned been on. Been. <laughs> <laughs> we're a few weeks into writing the pilot episode of our sci-fi TV show, and... We're plotting out the moment when our two spaceships meet. If this ship, like, it's all relative, right? Yes. So if that ship is stopped in space, it's stopped only in relation to the other ship. It's not stopped. Stopped forever. Oh. But we're getting hung up on the science. Instead of thinking about what happens when two ships meet in space, we're thinking about how that would even happen. Yeah, there's no stopping in space. <laughs> Everything is only stopped in relation to something else. Yeah. Yeah. So, And this is something that keeps coming up. Sometimes when you talk about space, I get so happy I live on Earth. I just hate it up there. It sounds awful. Instead of using our imaginations to dream up what life would be like aboard these ships, we're stopping to consider the science. And it's slowing us down. They w- the ship would have to have some, like a pleasure dome or something, like mm-hmm. some kind of like where humans can be human and feel unconfined. Yeah. They have somewhere they can throw a Frisbee, a designated throw area. Throw a Frisbee, run. Not to belabor the point, but Maddie, you can't throw a Frisbee in... Forget it. <laughs> Say it, Mark. Yeah, you Say can't. It. No, it, you can't. No, you, just, it wouldn't work. So how much science do we need to know? Um, and mm-hmm. here's how it works. It's called time dilation. Uh-oh. Is it our responsibility as science fiction writers to have a complete understanding of the science we're fictionalizing? Where do we draw the line? Can we make a trailer for this show for the internet where Mark is explaining time dilation and I go, okay, and put down my sparkly pink nail polish to listen? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) It's time to figure out the science in our fiction. It's Let's Make a Sci-Fi. I'm Ryan Beal, and along with Maddie Kelly and Mark Chavez, we're just over a month into writing our sci-fi show. And to catch you up, our show begins with an inventor, Kirby, who has lived her entire life aboard a spaceship. She believes that she and the 98 other people on that ship are alone in the universe. Then she hears a voice. There's another ship. They are not alone. This causes Kirby to question her entire existence and fight the powers who have kept this information from her. Now, a bit of backstory. Hundreds of years before our show takes place, Earth had a major crisis of some kind, and everyone on the planet was going to die. So in order for mankind to survive, they built a bunch of spaceships for a handful of people to try to make it to a new planet. The closest inhabitable planet, Proxima B, is hundreds of years away, so these ships were generational ships, designed to sustain life for many generations until the ship arrives at the new planet. 
That's where our show takes place, aboard the only surviving one of these ships. Uh, we're calling it Ship A. They are the great, great, great grandchildren of the people who left Earth. Earth is just a concept to them. Meanwhile, that crisis that was happening on Earth hundreds of years ago was averted. Yay! And in the intervening hundreds of years, human technology has advanced. Humans have now created faster ships and have made it all the way to Proxima B and have colonized it. And then, people on Earth realize that our ship A is still out there and it has to be stopped. For some reason. There are a lot of details still to fill in. But we kept getting hung up on something. Science. There were so many scientific questions that kept popping up. For instance, we've got a crew of 98 people who were born and lived their whole lives in space. How would that affect how they look? You know how if you go to like a theater that was built like 300 years ago or whatever, like the seats are too small because yeah. we're bigger? Yes. Yeah. They should yeah. be like smaller than the ship because they've been in space for so long. They're that's like so little. Cute. I think all these so giant like the, seats. And yeah, like, like, the chairs are too big for them. I think the I think when we first meet these people, I think the the audience should be like, oh, these are aliens. These are an, this is aliens. Yeah, they're like that'd be human, cool. and then like and then it's like no no no. They're just like evolved like yeah. to look and sound different. They're not aliens. They're humans. What about the physical ailments that already exist among astronauts? Cancer, radiation, you know, poisoning, uh, the bone disintegration, muscle. Um, atrophy? Is that something we want our show to have to deal with? So many science fiction shows have scientific blind spots. And people make fun of them for it. I mean, the Starship Enterprise has wall-to-wall carpet. How does that happen? We don't want to make a scientific leap that ends up with a ridiculous result. We don't want a show where there's just, say, blue people for no reason. Should ship be have, like, a blue girl? Or do we? Well, if we do have blue people, we want it to make sense. It should be as satisfying from a science perspective as it is from a fiction perspective. Because when film and TV writers decide to get imaginative with the logistics of their sci-fi, it can get a little messy. And there is one film in particular that's really messy. The movie that had more scientific errors per minute than any other movie ever made is Armageddon. Max, downshift slowly and put it in reverse. You gotta get that pipe out of there. Uh-oh. Yeah, per minute. <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier to teach astronauts how to drill than to teach oil drillers to become astronauts? I'm just thinking. I'm just. <laughs> this is Neil deGrasse Tyson. Ever heard of him? At the top of his long resume, he's an astrophysicist, a podcaster, and the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History. He's also well known for his critiques on science in popular culture. So, do I have a problem that spaceships are making sounds in space? Yes, but I've given up on that one. Okay. Star Wars would be silent movie, all right? Uh, at, 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 the, at the end of some of the episodes, what, I remember the episode four, I guess, which was episode one. You know, as the, the ships are coming back from having destroyed the, the Death Star, and there are people just walking around, and it's a complete opening to outer space as the ships come through. And I'm thinking, what? What? <laughs> what are you breathing? What? Do you have any understanding of what this is? We called up Neil to consult on the science in our pilot because we knew he'd be tough on us. But to be fair, he doesn't call out bad science in sci-fi just to be a jerk. I'm misunderstood by many in gotcha. my motives. 
We're commenting mm-hmm. on something. I'm not there to make sure you get everything right. I, I, I'm going to echo Mark Twain here, where he says, of artists, first get your facts straight, then distort them at your leisure. Beautiful. If you don't start in any foundational place, you just float away. And in today's Geekiverse, they'll find you and they'll track you down. Basically, Neil wants writers like us to get the facts straight because, well, real life science is just fascinating. You know, I, can, I can read science fiction and they have, you know, whatever. Or I can read real astrophysics and I have black holes and expanding universe quasars, wormholes. And I'm sticking with the real universe. Antimatter, that's ours. That didn't start with science fiction. That's a real um, form of matter in physics, antimatter. It, in the movie, uh, the second Dan Brown movie, Angels and Demons, one of the storyline, the premise is that the Vatican has this vial of antimatter. And the Perga created a darker, more violent Illuminati, one bent on, on retribution. And look how they intend to finally get it, using antimatter, technology to destroy the church. Science obliterates religion. And they're walking around with it like, like it's some kind of magical substance. We make antimatter all the time in the labs. All the time. <laughs> it's like, oh, you need some antimatter? Yeah, I'll order some up. They'll be ready. Go to, go to the pickup window in the back. <laughs> so, yeah, Neil's a pretty big advocate for getting the science right. It only makes your show better. But when it comes to chemistry, physics, and biology... The three of us have wildly different backgrounds. I was supposed to do astrophysics, so I I was I majored in physics, but didn't finish that, and I changed my degree to creative writing. <laughs> so I took a lot of like math and science. I never took any science. I'm terrible. I flunked in science. I took bio eleven, and then I dropped out of bio twelve because the instructor talked too softly. <laughs> so we're not the brightest stars in the universe. Is kidney stones a thing? It's a thing that astronauts get. Yeah, they get kidney stones. Why is that? Because they don't pee after sex. <laughs> That's not how you get. <laughs> I only took bio eleven. We didn't cover the human body, just worms. So to make up for our shortcomings, we assembled a crack team of scientists to join Dr. Tyson. First up is Phil Plate, a.k.a. the Bad Astronomer. My name is Phil Plate. Uh, I'm an astronomer, and mostly these days I'm a science communicator. I write the Bad Astronomy blog, and I have a newsletter also called Bad Astronomy. Basically everything I do is called Bad Astronomy. Phil got the moniker of Bad Astronomer because he started his career criticizing bad science in TV and movies. Movies like the ones we've already talked about in this very episode. Like in in the movie Armageddon, it's like went out of its way to get stuff wrong. Um, Oh, yeah, but you have a Gatling gun on a space shuttle. Okay, great. Um, I don't know what NASA purchase order that went under, but okay. And rounding out our team of Neil and Phil is someone who specifically helps TV writers understand science. My name's Meek McKinnon, and I am a science consultant in the entertainment industry, and I am a disaster researcher and geophysicist. Mika has worked on everything from Stargate to Sharknado. I'm not sure why. I have no <laughs> idea why. And at the time I was working on it, it did not involve sharks. I was dealing with the tornado bit. They kept the sharks from me. So now that we've got our team assembled, let's figure out some of our science. There are lots of little things we wanted to get answered, but they mainly fall into three categories. People, food and water, and the ship. Okay, people. 
We've been talking a lot about how there are 98 people aboard our main ship. That's a number we came to based on something we read about genetic diversity. 98 is kind of the, the lower limit. And then in the research we've all done, we've seen mm-hmm. like, it's 5,000 people or 60,000 people or whatever. So you can get like as big as you want. That number is very like, I don't, someone arrived at that number. I it could not. be whatever um, number we want, right? Like that's yeah. a number someone's arrived I at. I like it. Mm-hmm. We've also been toying with the idea of some genetic trait being common among people on the ship. Something that makes them look almost alien when we first see them. We also want to let it sink in, and it should be noted, and I know this is maybe the first time we're telling you, Dave, the people on the ship have blue skin. <laughs> <laughs> Food and water. Obviously, if you're on a ship for 600 years, you're going to need lots of food and lots of water. We've been talking about having a farming area on the ship where the agricultural workers, or Aggies, grow the food. And Mark is pretty keen on a water treatment plant that converts urine back into water. Like, he won't shut up about it. So you'd have tanks of fresh water, then you'd have all the stuff that was pumped into it, and then whatever the recycling thing is. And yes, yes, pee would be transferred to drinkable water, so get over it. (laughs) You keep saying this, and we're okay with it. Get over it, everyone. Lastly, the ship. How does the ship get around? And more importantly, when it gets to the new planet, Proxima, how is it going to slow down and land? We put these quandaries to all of our scientists, and they scienced the shit out of them for us. Mika first helped us with our ship's population. I like your population of 100. But Mika says it's not just important to have 100-ish people for gene pool reasons. There are other factors to consider, too. When we talk about disasters, there's this, again, pop culture conception that um, to survive a disaster is a very, like, lone, rugged individualism sort of thing. Like, oh, I will be fighting off the zombies with my shotgun and be fine. And... In actual reality, we see that disaster resiliency has a lot to do with community. Um, It's survive together, die alone is the shorthand of this. Because the first responders aren't the police or the firefighters or anything like that. It's the people who are physically nearby. So that's that first chunk of communities survive, individuals don't. The next chunk is it takes about 100 people to have enough labor in a day to be able to have specialization. Hmm. Um, So... And you want to be careful with your specialization. You want things like you don't really want a physician, a doctor. You want a vet. And the reason you'd want a vet is because they can deal with a greater diversity of, of problems. If you think about it, humans all look pretty much the same if you compare contrast to a vet dealing with a snake one day and a cow the next. And you can take that and apply it to all sorts of different roles of of you constantly want to go, all right, so what's the fewest number of specialists we can have, but make sure they're not too specialists. That's part of it. Neil also agrees with 98 people, but... You might get tired of seeing the same other people, but is that really any different from going to the same job every day? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's very similar. Kind of the same, you know, is it any different? And there's the annoying person in the other cubicle, you're going to have that too. Okay, so 98 people. Great, good. But should they all have blue skin? We wanted like a mutation that had happened because of lack of genetic diversity. So we've ended up with people on the ship have bluish skin. Does that spark right. anything for you? Is that fun? Yes. Is that <laughs> insane? Okay. Well, yeah, there's the blue people of Kentucky, which is the... Um, very small genetic pool and ended up with an anomaly inside of that. Uh, and it was an anomaly in how their blood was processing oxygen. Um 
there's a whole bunch of different ways you could do this where you, again, you have a slightly shorter life expectancy in return for some sort of um, recessive trait that becomes dominant inside your population. Oh, wow. Okay, that was a lot easier to justify than I thought it would be. I mean, I still don't know if I love the idea of everyone having blue skin, but, you know. And while we're on the topic of people, when discussing the idea of a generational ship, Neil raised a really interesting ethical question. The objectives of one generation are being imprinted upon that of a next generation. And without any choice in the matter. We live in what we'd like to think of as a free country with freedom of choice and, you know, pursuit of happiness. So if your pursuit of happiness is to go on a generational ship and I'm born from you and that's not my pursuit of happiness, you have doomed me to fulfill your dreams. And the I think the ethics of that need to be visited intensely to decide whether this is anything we should ever do. Heavy, when you think about it. And it should make for some good social commentary in our series, but we'll leave that for another episode. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Okay. On to food and water. Now... When we were writing, the topic of water really exposed each of our personal scientific backgrounds. Is there a way to collect water from space or no? Is there any water? There's no water in space. Can you synthesize water there's, from... There's hydrogen. Yeah, hi- yeah. Is there frozen water? You... Ice? Uh, there is, I mean, like, ice. yeah, I mean, you could, like, you know lasso a comet, but I, I think that's a little bit fantastical. Huh. Fantastical, eh, Mark? Now, this brings me no pleasure whatsoever. But let's see what a real astrophysicist, someone who completed their degree, has to say about this theory of lassoing a comet. It, comets are, like, the most common thing in the, in the solar system. To like, maybe, like, find a comet and and get some water from its tail. Yeah, there's, there's trillions of them out there, so it shouldn't be yeah. too hard to find, even, <laughs> even one in the direction you're going. So, by the way, when a comet shows up in the night sky, ooh, a Christmas comet or a comet this, and everyone gets all excited, we discover hundreds of comets a year. <laughs> well, that answers the water question. Mark, we're going to lasso a comet, which, as I understand it, is just a giant ice cube in space, and suck water out of it. But what about food? That's where the vegetarian equation comes in strong, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to raise a cow to eat the vegetables (laughs) you grew so that you then eat the cow. You bypass the middleman and go straight to the vegetables. So the high-calorie things like nuts and fruits and things like that. Although having a cow in a spaceship would be comedic, but yeah, we're trying to avoid that. It would be totally comedic, (laughs) especially since they're excellent producers of methane, okay? (laughs) 
And speaking about explosions from the rear, let's talk about how our ship gets around. Astronomer Phil Plate. There was an idea in the 50s uh, called Orion, which um, basically you, you have a ship and the way you propel it is you throw atomic bombs in the back. They blow up and then the, the, the subatomic particles generated by this explosion vaporize the shell, this iron shell in the back. That turns into a gas, an extremely hot gas, which then blows out the back. And that's your rocket exhaust. Oh. It, it works. Uh, it, it really does work. And you could even do things like blow the atomic bomb in a different place behind the plate so that that, that sort of gives you a thrust that's off center. So you can mm-hmm. turn that way. And if you want to simulate gravity, you can rotate the ship. Gravity and propulsion. That's two science conundrums in one. Phil also said we could use this technique of bomb exploding to slow the ship down when they get to Proxima. But if we're doing that, we now have to worry about the radiation coming from those nukes. Because radiation isn't already a serious problem in space. <laughs> we keep talking about the radiation, like, too. So how do we fix that? You can try and provide some shielding. Or you can create a barrier. And one of the nicest barriers you can create is water. And you need water anyway. And if you're already talking about trying to harness a comet, instead of bringing it alongside beside you, what if you just tuck up inside of it? And just, like, hang out with, like, a giant ice shield around you? Why is water so good? Like, if, if you had a ship full of people, let's say, encased in water... Uh, would they be fine? Like if they were able, to, like if they were aquatic creatures in space, would they be safe from radiation? They'd be a lot safer than if they were like us puny little air breathers. <laughs> now, if you haven't been paying attention through this series, while we've been writing our generational ship idea, I have had another idea on the back burner: an idea about water people, aquans. How does that stand up scientifically, by the way? I'm assuming perfect. Hey, Ryan, you should tell Phil about your other show idea that we're not writing. I once read somewhere, I don't remember where I read, that like some scientists theorized that humans had an aquatic stage of development in their evolution. Oh, God, the aquatic ape thing? Yeah, yes, the aquatic yeah. ape thing! That, yeah. That's, yeah, it's nonsense. Nonsense. Yeah. 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 We tell have hairy why. armpits because we lived in water up to our arms. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, You're well, talking to somebody who debunks here. bad science a lot. So <laughs> yeah, I there's know, nothing no. you can get past me that I have heard. So, but please, Ryan, go on. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to. Hours of consultation later, we have an explanation for most of the intricacies that make up the science of our spaceships. We've got blue people. We've got nuclear propulsion. We've got comet water. Mark. But now that we're starting to decode the little bits of science aboard our ships, it's starting to dawn on me that some of the bigger choices we've made don't make very much sense. There's something that Neil deGrasse Tyson said, specifically around our core idea of a generational ship that, well, it troubles me. If I may pass judgment in this moment, because this feels like the right instant to do so, uh, why are you doing this? (laughs) Have you already identified another Earth? And maybe so you're not going to come back, but have you? Have you breathed the air? Do you know that? And what's wrong with Earth, right? This is the argument that Elon Musk uses for terraforming Mars and, right. and, and dividing the human species so that if a major catastrophe hits 
Earth or, or one or the other planets, the species continues. Okay? Yes. This makes a good headline, but it's just not practical. You know, what might you fear? You might fear a killer asteroid, um, a killer virus, or climate change, something. All right, so here's, here's my reaction to that. Ask yourself. If you have the power to terraform Mars and ship a billion people there, it seems to me you have the power to turn a climate-changed Earth back into Earth. So, the headline, we're going to become a two-planet species, has no real motivation that survives analysis. These fundamental science questions are harder to answer than just... How many people are on the ship? When we start to overanalyze them, the whole pitch kind of falls apart. So what do we do? Should we start from square one with a more scientifically believable concept? Let's bring back Phil Plate again. Being that he's an astronomer, of course he cares about the psi in sci-fi. But that doesn't stop him from enjoying sci-fi classics that have shaky science. I mean, you can read Ray Bradbury. So this stuff reads more like poetry. It's, it's science fiction Uh, You know, they go to Mars, there's the Martian Chronicles, and there are Martians there, and it's a little bit of science stuff. But he doesn't let the science get in the way of the story that he's making. And if his story, it seems internally contradictory for the science, it's because he's making a bigger point about humanity or something like that. It reads more like fantasy. And maybe sensing our weariness, he left us with this bit of advice. If you don't know how a spaceship can go faster than light, don't sweat it. Nobody does. You just have to make sort of these decisions, and, and a lot of it doesn't depend on hard science necessarily. If your ship works because you've got a bunch of guinea pigs in the back running on little hamster wheels, um, great. Just stick with that. Think about if you have this sort of technology, um, what else can you do with it? If you have nuclear bombs that you use to propel your ship, it turns out they make decent weapons. So you have to think about that sort of stuff. What's the ramifications of your tech? But the important thing is the story. The important thing is the narrative and the characters, the plot, the theme, you know, all these things you learn in fifth grade. That's the important thing. And actually, right before we let Dr. Tyson go, he had his own pitch for us. And for context, we hadn't told him anything about ship B. Here's what you do. Still make the generational ship. Then, 50 years later, have another ship zoom by in a wormhole and say, hey! <laughs> and then they'll gather everybody on this slow boat and bring them back to Earth and said, we already took care of the job. And that's exactly what we're doing. Except the wormhole thing. But we could maybe steal that. To paraphrase Mark Twain, get most of your facts straight, then distort them at your leisure. And you know what? The hard science in our show is mostly sound. And even if the humans on Ship A are making a foolish decision to leave Earth, it makes for a good story. Next time on Let's Make a Sci-Fi, we've got the world, the characters, and the science. Now we just have to wrangle them all into a script. Or something that resembles a script. You know what it is? It's Horton Hears a Who in the first episode. It kind of is. Do you know that? Where, do you know that book, Mark? Well, I may know of it. I'm trying to remember what happens. Does Horton, he hears the Who people. Yeah. 
Horton, Horton, you're right about that, Mark. Horton does hear the who. Let's Make a Sci-Fi is hosted by Maddie Kelly, Mark Chavez, and Ryan Beal, and created by Kelly and Kelly with development from Ryan Beal. This episode is written and produced by Dave Shimka, Max Collins, and Chris Kelly. The coordinating producer is Lauren Berkovich. Jeff Turner is our senior producer, and Arif Nurani is the director of CBC Podcasts. Our theme song is by Chris Kelly. Special thanks to Neil deGrasse Tyson, Mika McKinnon, and Phil Plate. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.